Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Return of the Truth and Movies in today's show. Mad Manx action in Mindhorn as faded former TV star struggles to adjust to role on the periphery of life. Hmm, wonder what that's like. Also, Tampopo, venerated Japanese noodle western, is finally out on Blu-ray. But is it just Karate Kid with ramen? Film Club 2046, did you do your homework? We salute Jonathan Demme and start getting excited about aliens. All of that in this Truth and Movies it's a Little White Lies podcast. Good. Welcome, everybody, then. Uh, say hello to my little friends. Uh, that's a quote from a film, actually. No, I've not seen that one. Uh, David Jenkins and Adam Woodward of uh, Little White Lies. This is David Jenkins. Hi. And that's Adam Woodward. Hello. Right, excellent. And you can get in touch with us, by the way, uh, either on Twitter, at LWLies, or... And this is recommended email, truth and movies or one word, at TCO London or one word dot com. Did people get in touch this week, David? Yeah, we got a few pigeon posts and right. whatnot. Uh, a few, I think we did get an, e- uh, an, e- an we email. We got an email. We did. We email. Do you want to know what it said? Yeah, please do. Okay, this is from really Josh Senior, who takes exception to you suggesting that all Marvel movies are broadly the same. Well, I mean, he, that's, everyone can have their opinion, but... Right. but, but you know, it's what I'm saying is, you know, it's a fact. I mean, well, he, <laughs> he, he suggests that uh, he lists his favourite than that. He, it's just, for example, Ant-Man. It's quite different within the genre. It's very much a heist movie with superhero trimmings. Mm. Um, he also mentions as deserving of praise Captain America, The Winter Soldier and Civil War, Doctor Strange and Guardians of the Galaxy, suggesting there's a fairly diverse kind of spectrum, if you like, there of, of, of film types. I would add in Deadpool, which I thought was pretty different to... To say for no, I'd call Deadpool different. Yeah, I, I would say that it's a bit like you know how like M and M's are all different colours, <laughs> but like actually they're all the same. You know, but they, <laughs> they look they, different. They taste good, but they? They, but the, yeah, you know, too, it's a bit like that. I think. Oh, yeah. right. unlike Smarties. Yeah, or, or, or I mean Smarties because you well, got the so orange, the chocolate orange Smarties. I mean, the orange one is the kind of the, the exception that proves the rule. The the one that will eventually come on right. along that will be an experimental. It, were they epic. revels? Were they called revels or revels? This oh yeah, was, these uh, many like years rebels. ago, where you genuinely would get different contents within the. That is a surprise. That, that is, is a surprise. That, that, that's I think. I would prefer cinema to be more like Revels than Smarties. Right. Do you know what? We, just on that note, one of the greatest cinematic surprises I ever had was when I went to see a movie and um, the person next to me, and this is going to get chopped out because it's going to go on for a while, this anecdote, the person next to me had a big box of salty popcorn, which he invited me to dip into. And I dipped my hand into it. We're in the dark of the cinema. And I felt, instead of little pieces of popcorn or along with them, a lump of something congealed. I'm thinking, what on earth is in this popcorn? <laughs> Uh, I assumed it was maybe the the butter that just kind of run together and, and formed. But having had a, a drink or two, I just ate it anyway. And it was one of the most extraordinary experiences because there in the middle of this salty popcorn, in the dark, unexpectedly, chocolate. The guy Ew. had taken a bag of Cadbury's clusters and shaken them out so, and, the, and then shaken the box out. So you had the salty popcorn and, and a chocolate mix. It was extraordinary. I was a bit worried about where that was going initially. <laughs> yeah. But have you, yeah, have you, you seen, seen Diner? Yeah, Diner. Diner, yeah. Mickey Rourke in Diner. Yeah. <laughs> it's not chocolate in there. Certainly isn't. I, I'm slightly worried that a, a, a random stranger yeah. offered you his popcorn. It yeah. wasn't a random stranger. Oh, okay, fine. It was carefully selected stranger. Anyway, okay. um, here's Alex Hess. 
getting in touch because I was talking about Fast and Furious last week. He mm-hmm. says it might be of interest, real appraisal of the Fast and Furious movies. He's, he's, he's got a link to a Boston Globe article from 2011, to be fair. But the article makes a very interesting point that one of the reasons for its success is the fact that it is a racially integrated or a, a, a film with a kind of broad spectrum of heritages that in no way plays on that for mm. the drama of the film. Generally speaking, if you look at the highest grossing films, they tend to be all white uh, cast, or if they're not, they're making a point about some kind of tension or comedy inherent in the blend of, of, uh, of heritages. Uh, so it was a fascinating... Uh, and there's a couple of other uh, thoughts from listeners which we'll get onto later on, because right now... Let's unleash the mind horn. Sean Foley's film Mind Horn, uh, which opens on Friday the 5th of May, certainly in the UK, is starring Julian Barrett as failing actor Richard Thorncroft, whose career peak came in the late 80s, playing TV cop Mindhorn, who's got a bionic eye which enables him to see the truth, who now returns to the Isle of Man where the series was shot to negotiate with a criminal who believes the character was real. Well, it's an interesting film in the tradition of uh, British cinema comedy. And in fact, Adam, you yesterday had the great pleasure of hearing Simon Farnaby, who plays the shirtless Dutch stuntman in the film, uh, talking to Julian Barrett about their comedy heroes. My dad took me to see Monty Python and Holy Grail when I was young, and uh, many times, and uh, so I was obsessed with that film. And also I listened to a lot of... um, Radio comedy, Hancock, and uh, you didn't know this, did you, Simon? Uh, no, I didn't no. know. This is all new information. All new to, to Simon. Um, and you didn't, did you not have a TV in your house? No, because this was the, this I, was the 30s. I, knew, I think I... It's the 1930s. I think I would have guessed that about you. <laughs> Someone said, did you yeah. have a TV in his house? And I'd have gone, he just listened to a radio. Yeah. So uh, there was Hancock's Half Hour, uh, Step to Unstar on the radio shows of those I would listen to, uh, Bob Newhart, some American stuff, Woody Allen as well, the sort of uh, early funny films, you know, um, Love and Death and Sleeper, which me and my sister would The overtly funny ones. Yeah, we would act out, you know, scenes from, not Husbands and Wives mm. or anything like that, but from the earlier ones. Husbands and Wives is still pretty good. Yeah, but when we were seven or eight, it wasn't. Oh, was yeah, you're not going to be into all that sexual politics. <laughs> no. <laughs> so uh, that, and just the usual, I mean, the usual sort of people, I suppose. There was no one... I don't think there was anyone particularly uh, unusual on. on what about the, American? Did you really like American? Um, American. When, when did that start? I don't know. I'm thinking of. Um, well, I suppose Woody Allen is. Well, American. yeah. Um, the American sort of show. You mean later on when I got into doing comedy? I mean, it's a different sort of thing, I suppose. So. Uh, I suppose I mean in, for films, you know, uh, like the Will, Will Ferrell, Ben Stiller, and all those lot. Oh yeah, when I was doing that was when I was doing comedy. Oh, I mean, that's they when are you were doing heroes, it. of course, but. Um, Not heroes, like done childhood heroes. heroes. <laughs> right, and you can see all of that interview, Adam, where? Uh, you can see it on littlewhitelies.com and uh, we'll probably pop it on YouTube and all the other usual social media sites as well. All right. Mindhorn then. Yes. Terrible trailer. Terrible. I mean, really awful trailer. I don't know. I can't remember actually seeing the trailer. Okay. Um it was bad. It was, right. I'll yeah, tell you I think it's trying it. to. It's a very unconventional film, and it's essentially taking bits from that and trying to put it in a conventional format, and it just does. But uh, enough about the trailer. What's the film like? I really love this film. Um, I I can't think of a time I've laughed harder in the cinema. Certainly recently, in in recent years, it has this amazing blend of mainstream comedy and mm. sort of surrealism, um, very much in the kind of mighty Boosh, uh, Garth. Marenghi's Dark Place mould. It, it's quite a sort of traditional comedy in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think the script is a bit ropey in places, although I kind of love it for that, in spite of that. It, it, I just think the, the character feels so well realised, mm. basically. Um, in fact, when I was down yesterday seeing Simon Farnaby and Julian Barrett, there were all these uh, props, kind of naff merchandise, lunch boxes and, and, and mind horn action figures. The action figures, extraordinary. That, the way that they've created the whole milieu of Mindhorn. And there's a, there's, a, there's a grotto, almost a shrine to him in the film, which I think is, is brilliantly done. Yeah, and it actually, the, the character started off, it first appeared in a, in a 2001 episode of a, a BBC Radio 4 series, um, which uh, Mighty Boosh star hmm. 
um, Julian Barrett was part of. Um, so the character obviously is quite different, I think, to that initial inca- incarnation, but um, it's something that feels like it's been developed since there, basically. Right. And it does feel almost as if it was a series back in the 80s that is being revisited. I mean, it feels 100% real and at the same time deeply surreal. So uh, Adam says surreal, he loved it, laughed incredibly hard little bit ropey in places, but you almost feel that that was intentional, such as its homage to dodgy 80s cop dramas. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember seeing this at the London Film Festival in, in the kind of big Leicester Square Odeon, and it was... It was a riot. I mean, it was it, it was such a, an amazing atmosphere having like, you know, a thousand plus people laughing together at the same time at these very silly jokes. Um, I don't want to sound too negative, but one of the things I'm really down on is this kind of wave of sitcoms, TV sitcoms that then evolve into movies. Mm. And I find that really like weird. Where, where did you stand on Alpha Papa then? Uh, I was tepid on Alpha Papa. I mean, I, I love the original I am, I'm Alan Partridge. Um, I guess to give another sort of slightly strange metaphor again, if that's uh, permissible, um, it's a bit like seeing like one of your school teachers in, in a pub. Like, you know, like you, you, they're not supposed to exist outside of school, you know, and it's like seeing them in a real place. It's like, oh, why, why are you here? Why are you doing this? And that's how I feel about seeing a sitcom in the cinema. It's like, no, you're not meant to be, you know, this is the wrong place that, that you know, I shouldn't be seeing you here. Um, has, has there ever been a film version of a TV show that you've enjoyed? No, never. Not that I can instantly recall. Um, I quite liked, uh, and this, this is probably going against the grain a little, I quite liked a film called Guest House Paradiso, which was a, a, a spin-off of, of the, the sitcom Bottom um, with Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson. It's quite a arcane... <laughs> weird film and uh yeah it's not it's not talked of much but it's i think i think a revival is is due soon um but yeah with this one i think it has that it maybe feels like it could have been a sitcom but actually it doesn't have those shackles it doesn't right. have those kind of oh we've got to sort of play on what people know about the character already mm. we can just start from scratch and 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 there can be a lot of assumed knowledge and detail from from maybe from other stuff as well i mean i think that maybe in a way this does feel a lot like Partridge and the boot and the Bush, and, mm. and you do get added value from having seen those and knowing some of the kind of references. But at the same time, it's it's structured as an actual movie, right? More than the actual mind torn cop drama, I'd be interested to see the the spin off show, which in turn overshadows it eventually within the kind of the fictional world of, of this movie, mm-hmm. uh, in which Steve Coogan, I think it's called Windjammer, becomes this tremendously tremendously successful. Doing what we never know, but Steve Coogan's in this film, and which I found a bit weird to begin with. So I, I went to see it, and you guys had said this is amazing, and I'd said the trailers are awful. Are you sure? You said yes. So I went, and within Julian Barrett opening his mouth the first time, most of the screening room were absolutely in, in tears over this. And I was thinking, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to be on board for this. And especially when it became clear that it's playing on much the same kind of comedic notes of this a figure who's entirely without self-awareness, who's entirely um, delusional about his impact and role within the world, very much like an Alan Partridge or potentially a David Brent as well. And you know, there's kind of a subtopic here about what is it about our national character that, that makes us so interested in these figures who are obsessed with their past and former glories and can't cope with current realities. But that's a sociopolitical point for an, another day. But... Little by little, about half an hour in, I realised, oh, my word, I'm actually really enjoying this. Um, and compared to Partridge, what I thought was delightful about it, is apart from the fact that the characters got way more humanity than, than Partridge, Partridge is basically exasperating and, and irritating, but there's something about Meinhold that's actually really charming, mm. uh, despite himself. I think so. I mean, there's he's a sort of slightly tragic, kind of unsympathetic character, but mm. as you say, there's a humanity about him. I feel like you warm to him in a way that it feels quite natural. I mean, it doesn't feel ever forced. Like, they're, they're desperate for you to kind of like this character. Yeah. That's um, what I kind of think about the, the one of the issues with my with the Partridge film and the David Brent film is that there was, on one half, there was like, oh, look at these tragic fi- figures. And on the other half, it was like, oh, but how lovable aren't, are they really? If you and, and they kind of push, they try and push and present that lovability element like oh he's 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 awful but he's lovely mm. and i i think that with with mindhorn they don't do that they they say he is he's completely awful 
but let's just look at what he does to to find if there is any humanity right. in there. And but the uh, other thing that's interesting about this is that whereas Coogan with uh, Partridge is completely based in our world and as such, I think is more annoying than anything. Whereas because Mindhorn exists in, as you say, out of a completely surreal world, I mean, it's like a, a weird, trippy kind of John Nettles uh, fever dream, this, this whole kind of Mindhorn, Manx... Isle of Man uh, environment that 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 has a charm, and then you kind of accept him for what he is in his own universe. I mean, we're basically visiting his world in this film, yeah. whereas someone like a Partridge or a Brent are very much people who are deluded but are in our world. Yeah, no, this is. I think the film is a is a fantasy film. I mean, it's you know there is that sort of it departs from realism, even from the sort of opening scenes of seeing the the Mindhorn TV show. I mean, it's it's kind of so ridiculous mm. that you're kind of it sets you up very early on as like no we're not this isn't like you know kitchen sink realism here this is <laughs> this but is something else there's a really interesting sort of mundanity to it as well i mean i've never been to the isle of man but it, it's not doing a lot for the isle of man tourism board but at the same time it, it kind of sets up this 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 place which feels so uh, i guess in, ingrained or woven into the fabric of british life and british comedy in particular right. um, but it, yet is other Right, yeah. so it's a really kind of familiar setting. All right, I, I must admit, I left the cinema feeling almost like someone had played a very elaborate practical joke on me, which I had quite. I mean, I had very much enjoyed it. I did really enjoy the film. I thought um, Simon Farnaby as Dutch shirtless stuntman was brilliant, uh, movie stealingly good, um, and I love the cameos. There's there's a couple of brilliant cameo cameos in this, and I'm just gently stunned that this was um, from. Steve Coogan, it was a, a, a Baby Cow production, though. Mm. And Ridley Scott's exec produce. There you go. Yeah. Wow. All right. So, Marks? I think for anticipation, I mean, these kind of British comedies tend to come and go. And, and off the back of uh, the David Brent movie and Alpha Papa, I was a little bit unsure where, where I was going to go with this. So, a uh, three for anticipation. But, yeah, absolutely loved it. Four for enjoyment, four for in retrospect. Mm. I would, uh, yeah, ditto for that exactly. I mean, I was, I, w- I must say, like, that these films, before you see them, that there is a bit of an unknown quantity element to them. Like, you know, why is this a thing? You, ha- you have to kind of ask yourself. And <laughs> um, But, you no, know, I, 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 to say I was pleasantly surprised... It would be an understatement. Right. I mean, I was pleasantly shocked because it was uh, anticipation one and oh, then wow. a, a big four. P- pushing five. <laughs> loved it. And it, were I on an, a transatlantic flight to use that incredibly useful gauge, mm. I would definitely watch it again. Yeah, I, I would tell my fellow passengers to also tune in. Right. I mean, would you? I don't know. I, with all of that <laughs> praise, I still have the sense that not everyone's going to get this film and, and certainly... All right, maybe maybe I wouldn't tell the fellow passengers to tune in, but what I might do is if I saw someone in the seat in front of me watching, I might look over and watch while they were watching right. as well and right. probably still get some enjoyment and from And you them. know what? I, I might even tap them on the shoulder because um, I'm good with strangers watching yeah. those, as, as we know, but just because it would feel like we were both part of a very special club. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. A favourite pastime of mine, actually, is to... Uh, on long haul flights, watch someone else watching a film. Oh yeah, interesting. I would recommend trying it next time. That's yeah. very like Hitchcockian. Yeah. I yeah. Think. Um, What's the best experience you've ever had in that field? I, I saw someone fairly recently watching the film uh, Todd Haynes' film Carol, right? Which is a sort of very beautiful, yeah, uh, elegant love story. And about halfway through the film, there's a there's a love scene, sex scene, and uh, I, I got the, the sense that this person wasn't really enjoying the film all that much, but. Um, they sort of woke up a bit at that scene and then proceeded to sort of rewind and rewatch it several times. So, mm, all right. Hey, I tell you what. Speaking of sex scenes halfway through, that brings us on nicely to uh, our other big release this week, Tam Popo. We're going to be talking about that after we hear, by way of goodbye to Mindhorn, from Julian Barrett as the eponymous hero singing his '80s smash. You can't handcuff the wind. The moon was hot, the time was right And you were looking so good Our body heat was rising I thought you understood We had some fun together But I never, I never promised you forever It's not my style No, no, no You can't hang off the wind And if you try, you're gonna fail 
Trying to put thunder in jail. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, now, Tampa Poe yeah. is out this week on Blu-ray. Was it not available for ages then? Um, I don't think so. Okay. Um, not, not certainly not in the kind of deluxe Blu-ray, all bells and whistles edition that it is currently kind of being released as now. Right. I mean, it's a film that... I'd always known about mm. and I, I always thought it was one of these films that people like older people would watch at like key parties. You know those like where you oh. like it, it was a key party film for me. A key Did, party being something, Adam, you won't know this, but you put your keys <laughs> in the middle of the table. Yeah. And you do parties. You can go to other people's houses. I thought it was a bit of a kind of sexy film. Oh really? Okay. Um, and there is some of there, that stuff there, in there. There is, but it's it's actually different to what I was expecting. Yeah. Awesome. Um, but yeah. Uh, okay, so this is Juzo Itami's, and excuse my pronunciation, 1985 film. Uh, Juzo Itami, who came to a very unseemly end, he fell off a building, and a, he'd had issues with the yakuza before because he made a, a yakuza satire, and they slashed his face up in in retaliation. And supposedly, a, a, a yakuza told a yakuza told police afterwards that. Uh, they told him to jump off a building, put a gun in his face and said, we can shoot you or you can take your chances with the, the fall. And he did because, yeah, they weren't weren't fans. But anyway, before any of that unpleasantness, which happened in 1997, in 1985, he made this legendary film about uh, basically a noodle restaurant, a truck driver who stops at this small family-run noodle shop and decides to help its fledgling business and indeed the woman who runs it, who's called Tampapo, which means dandelion. And the story is intertwined with various vignettes about our relationship, well, the relationship between love and food, I think. Yeah. Okay. In the cast, a young Ken Watanabe. He's from such films as The Last Samurai, uh, Batman Begins, Inception, he was good in that, and uh, Godzilla. This is an early appearance from him as a young truck driver called Gun. Um, and a bit like ramen, I think this was a conscious metaphor. You've got your main broth of the story of them trying to sort the restaurant out and make it into the best little ramen shop in, in the East. And then you've got all these other little kind of ingredients and spices that are dropped in at seemingly random intervals. Do you know, this film has got 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That's unsurprising, I would is say. Is that unsurprising? Well, I mean, that, all that means is that 100% of people have rated it above three out of five. Mm. So oh, I mean, is that all? So, I mean, you know, it's it's not that big a oh, okay. deal. Oh, okay. <laughs> Who's going to talk about this? David. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, as I say, I, I hadn't. Uh, this is this is a film that I'd been re- I'd often read about and heard about through other people's conversations, mm. and never never actually seen before this release. At key came parties, out. Yeah. At key, when I was at the key parties, yeah, um, yeah. It's a, I think it's a really fascinating film. It's it's a kind of I, I wouldn't. It's a comedy. I wouldn't say it was like a comedy in the same way as like Mind Torn is a comedy. It's a comedy you don't really laugh at, but you kind of you have a sort of burst of inner warmth occasionally it's gentle. yes it's a hmm. gentle comedy um it's got some few, there's a very funny little kind of um preamble at the beginning with a yakuza in a cinema with all his kind of food set out and he kind of tells a guy that if he's eating very loud he's going to kill him which i which i very much espouse in the kind of cinema going uh, process um but yeah i mean it's this really nice film about i i guess it's it's very pro being the best you can be, and it, which which sounds quite bland, I guess. But I mean, climbing your ladder. Cli- yeah, I guess. I, I guess it's this idea of he's kind of trying to get her to uh, deconstruct what it is she does, mm. and by extension, her life and her mm. lifestyle and the way she thinks about the world and people, and then kind of enhance all these little individual elements mm. and bring them all together at the end, which is right. quite you know, it's quite philosophical in that way. Should people? Um, should people? Get the the Blu-ray or or, or view it f- via some medium or other. I I think yes. Well, it's re- the, this Blu-ray edition is really nice, beautiful, restored. You know, it's it's a really nice way to see it. I think. Um, you know, if I think there's probably going to be cinema opportunities to see it as well, and it's 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 probably worth catching. But yeah, no, it's nice. It's 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 just a very. Pl- I mean, in a kind of lame sort of way, the first thing I 
thought of when I finished seeing it is that I want to go and have a ramen right now. Right. So um, yeah, I did. I did that, uh, it, and it wasn't a very good ramen, which was a slightly disappointing. So I, so I almost sort of entered into a weird version of the film myself, but then I stopped there. Okay, I would say it's not a film to watch while you're eating though, because there's a few moments that sort of throw you a little bit. I mean, there's a few quite surprising moments let's say mm. um one involving a sort of splashing scene there's a few sort of is sex that the, the kind of hardcore prawn scene yeah yeah hardcore right. prawn well yeah when the yakuza is in the hotel room and a spoiler alert with his um with his bay so he, and he he pops that sorry carry on well he spreads salt on bits of her and licks that off and squeezes lemons and then brings out a couple of live prawns that he ha- happens to have in his pocket and puts them on her belly and they kind of wriggle around and stuff. Are they prawns? I thought they were like lobsters, maybe. Yeah, but that cra- doesn't work with hardcore. <laughs> I, think hardcore I think they're like tiger prawns. Are they, well, anyway, but in general, Adam, how did you feel? I think this movie is, is very original. I mean, I don't think I've seen a, a film like it before. Um Again, it sort of surprises you. I love the whole movie within a movie that you have this Yakuza character who who opens the film and, you know, you have this amazing narrative all the way through that you're never really sure where you are with it or where it's going. But, right. yeah, it's it, it's it's a strange film, but I think it, it's something which it doesn't feel dated in any way. I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like watching this film in the 1980s when, mm. you know, there wasn't really a lot of, like... There probably wouldn't have been a trailer for it. It may well have been a film that had been at a festival and um, certainly wouldn't have had a lot of kind of hype behind it. Um, it yeah, I wasn't really sure what to expect and I think it exceeded the, any kind of ideas I had about what it would be. Really? OK. On a completely unrelated note, you were saying before about um, TV shows becoming movies and I was trying to think there was an example of one that continually references that the... the Difficulty of transitioning from one to the other, but I thought it worked brilliantly, and it's finally come to me. The Simpsons movie, the Simpsons movie, glorious uh, bit of cinema. Compared to the compared to the early vintage days of the Simpsons, it's really it, it feels. It fe- I remember feeling it was a bit of a really. Some I mean, of my, it, was, it was good, but I'll it tell was, you what, I'll give you the South Park movie. Oh, the South Park the movie, South Park movie is probably okay. yeah the okay. exception. Perhaps you listener have an uh, alternative suggestion, but do let us know for for next week. All right, so you guys both love Tampopo and, and, and can understand why it's become this kind of legendary, amazing, must-see food movie. Yeah, I mean, the, the phrase kind of cult film gets banded around quite a lot, and right. I never really know what that means, because uh, to me that just means it's sort of popular. But um, this genuinely feels... I mean, if there's ever a film that you could apply that to, it feels like this one. And it's also a film about the craft and the art of movie-making as well, as mm. much as it is about food. Um, so it's, it kind of works on that level. It's quite sort of meta there's a scene in it which I which I was very fond of where it's a kind of homage to Charlie Chaplin where you have a you have this kind of street tramp and he kind of takes this young girl and breaks into a restaurant and you see him cooking an omelette and it's all it's all just done in you know it's what feels like real time but he just makes this very beautiful simple dish just like that uh, and yeah it was it's just a really nice scene to watch I thought like just watching how simple you could, it, you know how easy, quick and easy it is you can make something so so beautiful yeah that was his Chaplin-esque vignette you've also got kind of vaguely kind of kung fu movie vignettes there's the the western theme that kind of recurs throughout and there's there's various a bit of Yakuza action in there as, as well um, here's the thing I really didn't like this film I thought I was going to because you know you've heard things and when it started I thought this is quite charming I like the fourth wall breaking exercise at the start where the Yakuza addresses us and this whole kind of business of her evolving her uh, noodle shop and trying to make it better and the, the kind of seven samurai way that they try that these different characters come in to try and improve a different aspect of it I was really enjoying that but then these these cursed vignettes kept coming in and I just didn't feel any of them so for me this whole film was a little bit like um I mean, I mentioned Karate Kid back at the start, and there's a definite time there, but it was almost like My Fair Lady with noodles, but directed by the artistic director of the Hello Kitty range. Wow. I mean, it was, for me, I thought desperately dated. It reeked of the 80s in the way it was shot, the kind of, the whole kind of pacing and what it thought was kind of good enough to pass master as, pass muster, rather, as comedy. And that Chaplin bit was one of the bits I thought, oh my goodness, where is this film going? It's nice enough. It's it's a cute enough film, in my opinion. 
But I was staggered that it's it's lived with this reputation, which is why I, I kind of emailed you, Adam, and said, when did you last see this movie? Assuming you were going to say, well, yeah, not for 20 years or so. Um, yeah, I just uh, didn't didn't happen for me at all. I still can't get over the Hello Kitty diss. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's cold. No, for example, this film, right? I was just thinking, okay, so why was everyone so down on Chef, John Favreau's admittedly fairly mainstream and largely flawed paying to a... a, a a chef who goes on the road with a food truck to make Cubanos and, and one or two other little things along the way, in essentially a, a kind of a metaphor for his own decision to reject the Hollywood industry and, and take things out on the road a little bit more indie fashion, um, which I terrifically enjoyed uh, in, you know, in the context of its own ambition. Mm-hmm. Why does that kind of largely seen as, oh, nothing in particular, but this is, is venerated? Well, I think this is trying to do something with form rather than just t- just tell a tell a very kind of conventional... I mean, you know, Chef's yeah. quite a conventional story. That's and this true. Is actually, I think this feels quite radical. No, oh, I mean, OK. It, you know, in, in, in terms of its... Yeah, I mean, you're right, in its portmanteau structure. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's 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 um, it's trying to do something with the, the shape of the movie rather than just, you know, have the, I guess, yeah, the, the sort of foodie karate kid element at the beginning. I mean, I guess one of the things that I felt a little bit... I thought it was a bit strange that it was... That the central concept of it was this one woman having to impress all these men. It was. Right. It, it felt quite strange that the men were the experts and the woman was the kind of the one who had to do stuff to make to impress them, which felt a little bit dated. I think. Um, you know, a little, maybe, maybe that's my kind of PC mind no, imposing values onto the past that that that, that weren't there in in the eighties because that because they didn't have feminism in the eighties. Is that true? No, oh, yeah, very much so. Oh, yeah. good, yeah, right. I think um, certainly the story feels slightly dated, but what you're talking about the form, I think the, the way it's constructed, that for me is what feels so fresh about it today. I mean, if we're going to equate movies to food, I think talking about the Marvel empire, mm. that for me is very much like the, the fast food culture of cinema as it is today. And, you know, they give you this kind of sugar rush and then afterwards you're kind of left with not a lot. And and yeah, this for me is it, it is that that experience or that feeling of going and sitting down, having even if it's quite a simple meal, having mm. um, having a, a dish that you really kind of savour and, and take time over. Oh right. Well, you, if, if people want to let us know what they think, then that'll be fascinating. Um, anyway, right, interesting. What's your favourite film about about food, David? Do you have one? Yeah. What's that? Called Big Night. Oh right, the Stanley Tucci. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, th- I think that's an amazing film. It's uh, two two Italian brothers and they run a restaurant and a, a critic is going to come and lift them from the doldrums. So they basically channel all their energies into this big feast. Mm. And well, I won't spoil what happens in the end. Ha. But um, there's do lots they get their just desserts? Well, <laughs> well, we you know find find out for yourself on right. that. But. Adam, yeah, I'll, I'll second that and throw in uh, delicatessen. As oh well. yeah, right, okay. Um, no, no love for Ratatouille then. Do you know what Ratatouille is possibly my least favourite Pixar film? I think. Really? Yeah. Really. Th- th- this is a whole uh, separate episode right here, but yeah, I think it's sort of Finding Nemo. I find that surprising to hear. I, I'm I mean, I'm, staggered by I'm, that. I'm, I'm, I'm Team Ratatouille big time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and my least favourite Pixar film is, is Finding Nemo two. Unless it's one of the Cars films, might be one of the Cars films. I think, I, yeah, I'm just talking kind of. Original Pixar movies, not okay. sequels. Well, we've got we've got Cars three coming up yeah. soon. So. Did you read that extraordinary thing uh, in which one of the um, one of the brains behind the Cars Empire um, was explaining that in his mind that world exists because the humans basically have all been dispensed with because automated cars have become self aware. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's my uh, vision of, of of humanity in the future. So I mean, it it, it, all, it all adds up. Yeah, yeah. and I, I I'd actually watch that first film again in that context because I reckon there could be a a much darker film experience there. I think you should watch all Pixar films in that context. Yeah. Like Finding Nemo is, <laughs> it's all Mad Max. It's all <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway. Now after this bit of drumming, we're going to move on to our next delight. It's our Little White Lies Film Club. Uh, this week about two o four six. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Yep, The Little White Lies Film Club, in which we recommend a film that you may have missed or a classic that's well worth reappraising that generally relates in some way to some film we're discussing. And last week we, we suggested 2046, One Car Why, uh, set in 60s, 1960s Hong, Car, Hong Kong. James Gunn, who directed Guardians of the Galaxy 2, said that it was one of the three films that influenced him in the making of that picture. Gentleman Baker says, this 2046 is one of my favourite films of all time, along with its companion piece, the earlier In the Mood for Love. Such beautiful melancholia, it makes my heart heavy to recall it. What would you like to add to that, Mr Jenkins? No, it's uh, this, the same. It's it's. I've, re- I've re-watched it recently, having not seen it. I think I saw it when it originally came out in the cinemas in, in 2004, I think it was, and... Um, remember feeling a bit weirded out about it, especially because I was absolutely head over heels about um, uh, In the Mood for Love, mm. which is, which is a, I think, a simpler film in many ways. I guess this is, this is what you would describe as um, the film of a free man. Right. As in, he's, like, someone signed a check somewhere, you know, pressed it across a table to him and right. said, do whatever you like. Right. Because, and, and, and it kind of feels like that's what it is. In a sort of glorious way, and in, and in an infuriating way, but in an always interesting way. Right. Um, the earlier film, the, the simpler film, "In the Mood for Love," stars Tony Leung, who's back in this one, and Maggie Chung, as a newspaper man and his beautiful neighbour, who are drawn together when they discover that their respective spouses are actually having an affair with one another. Uh, this is a lot less narrative and a lot more kind of lyrical. I think so. Yeah, and it's. Uh... It's maybe not the first film I would recommend people if they haven't seen an Encore White film before. Okay. But it's interesting that it's bookended by In the Mood for Love and then um, My Blueberry Nights, which is his first, I think, his first English language film, which sort of um, was critically... My Blueberry Nights. Yeah, which is sort of Jude Law. Nora Jones as well. Nora Jones. Not not his best film. Uh Uh-huh. But you can definitely see the kind of progression from, from one to the next. Chunking Express is one of his early films. I think it's possibly the first film I ever, the first foreign film I ever saw. Um, just because I remember seeing it in my local video store, um, renting it on VHS, just being like dazzled by the by the VHS artwork. And I probably watched that film ten or twelve times. And so I've, I've you know, always had an affinity for his films. And and I'd say maybe start off with that and in the mood for love more so than this. But yeah, there is something really kind of magical and definitely melancholic um it does lull you into this um beautiful world that he creates mm. i think it's one of the most ravishing films i can remember seeing and whilst a little bit frustrating the lack if you like of a, a narrative arc per se means that it's re- you know it is so much about the visuals and and sensations moods emotions as opposed to specifically events that that i think you you can go back and visit even bits of it again and again. A couple of things about you were saying about the blank check. I really respect the way that he completely committed to his artistic vision. Three cinematographers he used for this. It's like a band having two drummers. I always found that really impressive. So he had three cinematographers and apparently I was reading that while he was actually filming it um, photographer, a photographer managed to get pictures, on-set pictures and, when he just, and they were published in some Hong Kong magazine and Wong Kar Wai basically destroyed the set and refilmed it all again so that no one would know what he was making until, you know, he, he got, got to put it out there. But just drop-dead gorgeous film. Why, why do you think James Gunn cited this as an influence for Guardians of the Galaxy 2? Well, I think 
Mm, it's it's an, I certainly was think trying to think about that, and the, I, I think the the main link I can discern is is that both have these very sort of florid visual sense to them. It's they both do a lot of interesting things with light and color and 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 how sort of light and color move in the frame. I guess um, yeah. I mean it's it. I, I, I'm not sure I instantly see the connection. I mean, like 2046 is this very abstract movie, which is kind of, instead of going along, it kind of almost goes down. It's a, it's a, it's, it, it's just layers. It's, it's, you know, you're inside someone's mind and you're inside their, their fiction. And then you're, you, you know, you, you never really know what is reality, what's fantasy, who's, who is a figment of the imagination, who is, a fictional construct and it kind of mingles all these things together at the same time and and just sort of lets it fly and i guess you know guardians of the galaxy 2 is opposite i mean you're just very it's very you know where you are and you know what planet you're on and you know yeah. who you're with and the, the other difference is guardians of the galaxy 2 a lot of that is all about how much you can put on screen uh, whereas this is how much you leave off screen I and mean, so much of this film is, is all about large areas of the um the f- the, the screen being just left black to frame up on one particular detail. Mm. And like you say, it's all about the mood and being in the moment and capturing people's reactions as well. He's mm. a master at doing that, I think, in this film. Yeah. Doesn't it's, look like it was directed by the, the Hello Kitty creative team, this one. No. no. But there, yeah, there's that, there's the amazing bit that I, that I sort of rewound and watched a few times where he's having an affair with a woman and it's kind of, they've ended it and they keep seeing each other in the same restaurant over again. And he kind of films that where he kind of films his reaction, then he cuts to her reaction, he cuts back to his, and you get this kind of little ping pong match of of reactions as they're kind of walking past each other. One of the things he's always been interested in is these facial ticks and stares, and you know how people look at each other. And it, I, I guess it's that kind of trying to transcend verbal communication. Right. You know, it's it's all about his films are all about body language, and this I think is maybe the kind of ultimate expression of that. Mm. Some nice food in this one as oh, well. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. What are we going to do next week on The Film Club? So next week, in anticipation of uh, Alien Covenant coming out, wow. we're going to revisit David Fincher's uh, third film in the original Alien trilogy, which is Alien 3, or Alien Cubed as it's styled, mm. um, which is, uh, I think, the strangest film in the Alien series, a film I've probably only seen once, uh, set on a prison with a sort of cast of British actors and Sigourney Weaver. Um, and it's a film that David Fincher himself disowned. Right. Uh, following some sort of complications with the studio. Um, and, yeah, I think it's probably worth a reappraisal. It's, it's got a troubled history, but it forms part of a great cinematic legacy. It's going to be interesting to see what our reactions are now to it. Have you seen I haven't seen it, actually, David. It's the only film from the series I haven't seen. Oh, yeah, I've seen it a couple of times. Um, I love, love David Fincher with all my heart. And that's probably the one film... Actually, no, there's two films of his that I'm not a fan of. And one of them's Fight Club, which maybe is another story for another day. And the other one is is this one, is well, Alien I, 3. I, Sorry to no, drop that No, I, I, right I thought Fight Club was an absolute good in that there was no... There's no arguing with it. Um, what, that, no, no, we can't, we can't talk about that now. OK, Fight Club, Why It's No Good by David Jenkins on a future truth and movies. Uh, anyway, we'll have our reaction next week to... Alien Cubed, because, uh, you know, it's exponentially more alien. Uh, I think one of the things we may, may have to discuss, actually, is I think there's different versions of this right. film. So I think, well, let's definitely key up which version we should watch. OK, maybe, well, you'll put that out on Twitter, will you? Maybe we should, like, check what? with the Twitter folk, right. which, which is the, the premium. If you want to get in touch with us, with your thoughts, at LWLies is the Twitter address, and Adam, that email address... Truth and Movies, or one word, at tcolondon.com. Bingo. A little bit more drumming. Now, uh, to finish off today, uh, we salute Jonathan Deme. And I must admit, I never knew that's how you pronounced his name, but Jonathan Deme, uh, who passed away... End of last week, is that right, David? Yeah, I think just just after we'd released this podcast. Right, age of 73 and uh, a massively influential director in the 80s and and 90s when you you think of films like 
well, Silence of the Lambs. Jack Levani actually tweeting and saying, to what extent did Silence of the Lambs influence tonally and stylistically the 90s, X-Files and Seven? Spring to mind as examples of this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson have, have cited him as, a, a, as an influence and I think he's possibly the most uh, underappreciated director of his generation. Why do you think that is? Just in, in what he... Not necessarily in the in the films that he made. I don't think you would look at his filmography and say he is kind of one of the all-time great American directors, but certainly from a kind of technical and formal point of view, I think he definitely pushed the boundaries in terms of his use of close-up and framing um, just to kind of drive the narrative, but also lock you in on a specific character. Right. Really diverse body of work from kind of the early things like Melvin and Howard, Stop Making Sense, Something Wild... I love something wild. Right, part of that whole yuppie nightmare genre, which was so big in the... That needs to return. The yuppie nightmare. Yeah, the after hours. After hours. Um, And into the night, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. But then you had mentioned uh, Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia, which was huge, the Manchurian Candidate remake, and Rachel Getting Married, which I don't know if you you were going to nominate, John, for anyone who's not familiar with with Demi's uh, oeuvre, if you if you suggest a couple of films to see, I would certainly say Stop Making Sense and Rachel Getting Married, which I loved. Those two are, are both brilliant, and yeah, along with maybe some, like Something Wild mm. and some of his like really early Roger Corman ones. And, and in fact, one of my yeah, surprisingly, one of, I think one of my favorite of his films um, is actually his sort of swan song, which is a a film called Justin Timberlake. And the Tennessee Kids, which is what a, happens in that one? It's a concert film uh, involving Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids, <laughs> and in fact, it was actually something that um, it weirdly it played at like a film festival, the Toronto Film Festival, mm. and it was just one of these things that I, if I was at the festival, I probably wouldn't have gone to see it, and if I hadn't read about it, I probably wouldn't have have just chanced upon it. But it just had this amazing critical reaction. All these critics were seeing it, and going, you know. This is the best film at the festival. It's really? a Justin Timberlake concert film. The way he films it is just astonishing. I mean, it's very it's similar to Stop Making Sense in that um, he uses these quite wide angle shots. So you, he he includes the whole band. You can see people working together. You can see how Timberlake himself is is the central figure, but he's enhanced by all this other stuff that's going on. And he's I mean I think one of the things that you hear often about um, Deme is is he's He's like a real humanist, and I think that translates in through his films as well. I mean, he loves people, and he, you know, he loves celebrating what people do, and you know, uh, how they express themselves. But reading some of the really incredible stuff that has been written about him posthumously, he, I mean, he just comes like everyone. Nobody has a bad word to say mm. about him. I mean, he, 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 he was apparently, you know, he's not like this kind of cigar chomping nightmare who would like kick chairs over on a set. I mean, he was just. A, a, a lovely guy who would, you know, want to make the move, the, the the experience of making a movie a positive one, happy experience. Like, let's make this is let's make this a fun thing, not not a nightmare. You know, so it comes through in his films in that kind of love of people. I think. All right, Adam, have you got a favorite or a couple of favorites? Rachel getting married is one that really. Um resonated with me when I first saw it and actually it's a bit of a it feels like it's a bit of a throwback to some of his early 70s and 80s films so definitely a, a good one to watch if, you, if you've if you not seen any of his films before I mean I guess most people are familiar with Science of the Lambs but actually I'd, I'd recommend people go and revisit that as well cause really? yeah I think there's a lot in there which I don't know you might might not appreciate kind of just how good it is really kind of I probably don't because I remember at the time not liking it very much that film for me suffered hugely from the fact that it the Manhunter which had come out before, mm. um, I thought did a better job. It didn't have Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter, who'd been brilliant in the role. I mean, just scary good, I think, a year or two earlier. And it said it out, Anthony Hopkins uh, being all kind of lovey and stuff and, and chewing on as much scenery as he did kind of, you know, anyone's liver with fava beans, mm. to be fair. But, I, yeah, when I get a moment, I'll go back and watch that again. Certainly a much missed figure than Jonathan Demon. And and Justin Timberlake, what an extraordinary choice. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a different counterpoint, I guess, to something like Rachel Getting Married, which is a sort of fairly low-key, 
melancholy drama and you've got this amazing immersive concert film and he made have like, you seen he, it too Adam? I've seen it as well I think it's on Netflix possibly Ooh, okay. and he's, um, he, he made some amazing like he, all his concert films were great he did some really good ones with Neil Young he's done like yeah. three with Neil Young right. which were all really good Talking Heads and Bruce Springsteen I think as well yeah well, he was a music video with the UB40 yeah. and Chrissy Hind I Got You Babe yeah there you go yeah who are the Tennessee boys it's not a kids. spoiler. The Tennessee Kids. Oh, the Tennessee Kids. Oh, that's just his band. That's his backup oh, really? band. It's, it, all, okay. it's, all, it's not just a, a, a guy playing an iPod. It's like an actual, he has an actual full band playing all the songs. Right. On, It'd be on great a... if he'd started out walking out with just an iPod, which he put down on the centre of the stage and then, no, okay. No, well, yeah. And then start singing Sexy Back, which is yeah. literally the only Justin Timberlake you song. Get, you get a real <laughs> sense of the scale, the scale of this production as well, because you've got... Obviously, Justin and the Tennessee Kids, right. the backing band. You've also got all these dancers um, and, I guess, behind-the-scenes stagehands and production people and lighting, and everyone is part of this huge unit um, that puts together this amazing show, basically, that wow. you're, you're sort of privy well, I have to. to see this now. I have to see this. You just, you just, I just hope that it, it wasn't all done for the cameras. You know, like, yeah. oh, the cameras are rolling, let's pretend we're a big family. Don't you think that Demi would have that, been wise to that? Yeah, no, I think he would. That's that's just my cynicism coming okay. through there. Anyway, right. that's, Jonathan... that's probably a good note to end on. Yeah. But anyway, one of the good guys, Jonathan Demi. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, well, next week, then, we'll be back with, ooh, Alien Covenant. And your thoughts, hopefully, do get in touch. To play us out, there's a little nod to one of the greatest concert movies of all time, no, don't worry, it's the Stop Making Sense one. Here is Talking Heads and Once in a Lifetime. This has been a Seven Digital production. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.